Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It's hard for me to pinpoint where and when my eating disorder began. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. He just couldn't sense that I was hopeless. You get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. I began rereading my diaries and actually it enabled me to grieve for the little girl that got horribly lost and I just wanted to take her hand and help her get get out of that terribly dark forest that she was lost in for so many years. You're enough, you're more than enough, and you will always be enough. My eating disorder started at seven. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge, and your daughter's not there. There is hope at endad.org.au. Daily Dollop Podcast, everyone. I'm really excited today to have a special guest with me. Joining me is the incredible Millie Thomas. Millie is a certified eating disorder recovery coach and neuro-linguistic programming practitioner. Millie battled anorexia nervosa for 15 years and is now fully recovered and providing support and guidance to other eating disorder sufferers. She provides individual coaching and a fortnightly support group through an organization called End Ed and her private practice called Healed. Millie also hosts the End Eating Disorders podcast, which is actually produced by the same network as The Daily Dollop. So we are kind of like podcast siblings. Hi, Millie. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I am so excited to chat to you. I have an uber long list, as you know, of questions that I sent you that I'm dying to talk to you about. But in true Daily Dollop style, do you have a fun fact that you would like to share with everybody? Oh, I think I do. So my wrist, uh, my right wrist is, is a little bit stuffed up, um, but, but it comes out at a bit of an angle. And that's because I uh, was once working at a health retreat and teaching an aerobics class and fell onto it because I'm a little bit unco like that. <laughs> and then uh, we're in the Hunter Valley. It's very hot and I wanted to continue working. And um, and we went to a rural hospital and the cast they put on wasn't the tightest cast. And so I was able to slip the cast on and off to go for little swims and do the things that I wanted to do that weren't really appropriate with a cast on. And so <laughs> long story short, my wrist never actually set back in place properly. So um, oh, no. yeah, that that's me, my little bung wrist. I love that. I love that your vigor for life just was like, I'm not letting this cast hold me back. Absolutely not. <laughs> I love that. I'm actually getting physio on my shoulder for the same reason that I didn't do the rehab eight years ago on an injury. And now I'm doing the rehab because 
anyway, we learn, right? Don't we? We live and we learn. My goodness, (laughs) we do. Absolutely. And I think it's kind of like a good topic to think about, you know, you know, healing ourselves and, and allowing ourselves to go through the process of being healed. Patience, Kate, patience. Yeah, because this is your journey. So do you mind, um, before we get stuck into a bit of your story, just telling me and the listeners a little bit more about your role as an eating um, disorder recovery coach and and what that involves and, and what you do um, as a coach. Absolutely. So I work as an eating disorder recovery coach and a neurolinguistic programming practitioner, so NLP. And I work for both uh, the amazing Sunshine Coast-based eating disorders charity, Ended, and then I also have my private practice, Healed. So mm-hmm. I do I do my coaching as well as um, a myriad of other things. I, I run some groups. I do the social media. Um, we've got the End Eating Disorders podcast, and I also am involved in several projects in New Zealand, and we have also just established Australia's first residential eating disorders facility, narrative so there's Amazing. a lot happening and we've also got the ended espresso bar and the house of hope up in Mumbai which we're will be opening next year um so mm-hmm. we're very very passionate about community connection and compassion and the impact that that can have um on people recovering from from eating disorders and have also been involved with um a, a lots of stuff using my lived experience to create systemic change um, at a federal level. So I'm very passionate about eating disorders. And one of the things that uh, I, I love about what I do is the power of recovery coaching. So it's been a lot of stuff in, in the media um, worldwide recently around recovery coaching and the fact that it's a real game changer in eating disorder treatment. And so um, as a recovery coach, I'm, I'm on tap for my clients. So it's all very well to have an hour session with your psychologist or your dietitian each week. However, having a recovery coach means that you you have got someone literally walking alongside you on your journey. So mm. what I know from my own experience is eating disorders don't have operating hours. They don't clock out on at nine and they don't clock off at five. And so my clients can reach out to me whenever they need to and they get that real in-time, you know, real-time support. Um, so say someone's had dinner and then they're feeling really vulnerable and like they want to engage in a particular behaviour, they can message me. I'm going to message them straight back and we'll figure out a strategy for help them get through those feelings. Um also, the other thing is, is the beauty of my lived experience is I see straight through that eating disorder. So they may be able to run rings around um, other therapists, but I'm going to see straight through it and call them out on um, on their BS, as a lot of my clients say. And and that is really, really amazing to be able to do that. And it's a, a, a talent that, you know, I spent 15 years getting that talent. So um, I have, you know, the ability to do that. I So I work alongside a client's multidisciplinary team. So they're, they're psychiatrists, they're psychologists, dietitian, GP and mm-hmm. work together to help them um, achieve the, the treatment goals that are set by the team. And so it's very much, you know, a collective effort. And mm. I'm able to help with a lot of the more practical aspects that um, other members of the team might not be able to. So, for example, I can go grocery shopping with them, provide meal support, help them clean out their wardrobe when they've uh, gained weight. Um, and, you know, along with the more practical aspects, it's also things like identifying, you know, behaviours that are sabotaging their recovery, um, teaching them how to practice body acceptance, you know, introducing concepts like body neutrality, challenging food rules. I I do fair food jars with clients and um, we pick them out each week in our sessions and then um, throughout the week they send me photos. And so it's really about doing recovery together, 
I guess, and and being yeah. that guiding light um, a- along the journey. And um, I think for me, you know, I know that if I'd had a recovery coach when I was unwell, it would have made a massive difference to my recovery. And that's why I'm so passionate about what I do. I think that's gorgeous. I have frequently throughout my career as a nutritionist and just teaching people about food and eating have often thought, I just want to live with you for a week and just give you the skills that you need, go shopping with you. And I'm like, oh, if I did that, it'd be really expensive and my (laughs) my family would resent me. But I can so relate to how you've come to this point in terms of setting up your business and helping people in this way, how you've got there. It just makes so much sense. It's awesome. Yeah. And there are coaches that do live in coaching. Um, yeah. I'm, are there? Because, wow. Yeah, there are. Um, but because I'm across so many different things, that wouldn't um, wouldn't work for me at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you talked a lot about this idea of lived experience. So you um, suffered from an eating disorder for a pretty long time. I remember listening to your story on the End Eating Disorders podcast and it just moved me so much. So can you share a little bit about, yeah, just your journey um, with your eating disorder and when that started and how you felt like that started and just, yeah, your process to where you are now? Absolutely. I'll try and I'll try and do a shortened version of that. <laughs> it's hard to sort yeah. of cram 15 years into five minutes. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I had a very normal childhood, um, didn't really think about my body at all other than what it allowed me to do. Uh, yeah. And uh, then I was put into uh, an all-girls private school at year seven. And uh, at the end of year seven, I had full-blown anorexia. So uh, what we know now is the genes load the gun for an eating disorder and the environment pulls Mm. the trigger. So I was genetically predisposed to getting an eating disorder. I had the personality characteristics that would, um, you know, predispose someone to getting anorexia. So perfectionism, OCD, high achiever, all those types of things. And then I was put into an environment, which was that school where the scene was set and um, my eating disorder just really dug its claws in. And so I was taken out of school uh, for year eight. We basically, I was refed. We did family-based therapy. My mum took time off work. And um, the idea at the time was that uh, we feed her up and we get her weight up and then she'll be fine. Entered back into school in year nine, still had all of the thoughts, but I thought, well, I have to pretend to be fine. Everyone's like, oh, great, she's well again. Um, And so I threw myself into academia to cope with that. I was like, I'm going to be the best student. I'm going to be fantastic at sports. I'm going to, you know, do all the cultural stuff, and which I did, but I wasn't living. I was existing. I wasn't doing the things that a typical uh, teenager does. I wasn't going to parties, or even if I did, I wasn't, you know, really um, participating and and being myself. I was always so worried about whether I'd be made to eat or what I looked like compared to somebody else and all of those things. It very much lived in my head. Um, and then that was, that, that continued. And then year 13, which is the last, so all of this happened in Auckland, New Zealand, what I should add that um in my year 13 year which is the last year of high school in New Zealand um I was nominated to represent New Zealand at the Global Young Leaders Conference which was to be held in Washington and New York amazing opportunity Mm, and I um you know, embrace that with, with open arms. It wasn't until I got on the plane that I realised that uh, this was the first time I'd actually been away from my parents since my eating disorder began. And so I had been on holidays and done amazing things, but my parents had always been there. So there was someone there making me eat. And so I got on that plane and the eating disorder just took hold and said, oh, look, this is a great opportunity. You're not going to have to eat. No one knows. You can lose some weight. And I came. I lost a significant amount of weight on that trip. Um, dangerously so and got home and unfortunately by that point I'm, I'm, I was 18 
my parents couldn't make me do anything or, you know, they could guide me and support me. But at the end of the day, these were my decisions. So um, that became my new normal. That weight became my new normal. Uh, I got a scholarship to university. So I went straight, um, straight to university, studied business, marketing, topped the business school. Again, uh, existing, not living. But pretending to, you looked at my Facebook memories from back then, and oh, look, there she is in Ibiza. Oh, look, there she is. <laughs> you know, uh, the whole time I was just miserable internally. Yeah. Um, but I was very good at putting a game face on. And little by little, I just kept losing more and more weight, just bit by bit. Um, so, and then that would become my new normal. And then that lower weight would become my new normal. Um, obsessed with exercise and restriction. And... Basically, fast forward, I was, so the whole time I was being seen as an outpatient uh, from a hospital in Auckland, and uh, there was one day where they asked my parents and I to come in for a meeting, and I'll never forget that day because they pulled my parents and me into a room, and I remember everything about the room and what I was wearing uh, very, very vividly, and they basically said, well, you know, you're one of the most severe cases we've ever seen, um, and you're not going to make it, and basically palliative care is, is, is the option. Um, that mm. needs to be considered. And that day was the day that I felt my hope got taken away from me. You know, up until that point, I'd yeah. really been trying. I hadn't been making that much progress. However, I had been trying. And yeah. when the so-called experts told me there was no hope, then what's the freaking point? This recovery stuff is so hard. And I'm just mm. being told that it's not even possible. Why mm. would I bother? Um, so I stepped out of that room and, and obviously never went back to that team because I was just so upset with what they had said. Um, mm. but unfortunately that triggered off an even further downward spiral. So then I lost more weight, um, and it got to a point where I went to my, my local GP who'd been our family GP since I was a baby. Um, I went to get some medication and, he basically looked at me and I just remember him having tears in his eyes and he said, you've got a week, maybe two to live. We need to decide what you want to do. Do you want to live or do you want to die? And mm. I had never been suicidal, never been depressed. But in that moment, after 15 years, I was done. You know, I was done mm. with waking up every day, feeling like it was Groundhog Day and I had to face this all too overwhelming reality that was a li my living hell. Um, mm. I, di I didn't sleep because I was starving. I was freezing cold. I, you know, couldn't get comfortable because my bones were sticking out. I, um, you know, was running for ridiculous amounts each day on, you know, painful, painful stress fractures. I had the bones of an 80-year-old. Um, life was miserable. I, I just, I literally just dreaded each day. And to my way of thinking, you know, I tried so many different treatments over the years and I just, the only way that I could ever say that I'd be at peace was to be looking down on the world from afar. So I made that decision. I went home and told my mum, which of course she found very difficult to come to grips with. Um, however, she also knew how hard I'd been trying and how long we'd been on this journey for. Um, mm. And she wanted some peace for me as well. So, uh, well, she was going to Noosa. She said, "Will you come with me?" It always been one of my happy places, um, and I, I, you know, unbeknown to me, her hope was that you know this would spark something in me. She'd also found a woman who specialises in NLP and hypnotherapy. Uh, her name was Silky, and I went, I went with Mum to Noosa, and I agreed to go to an appointment with Silky. I agreed for Mum, not in a moment. Not for a moment did I think it was actually going to work. I mean, she's never dealt with mm. eating disorders ever, this woman, and I've tried every specialist under the sun, so how is it going to be any different this time? However, um, 
Silky, I vividly remember her just saying, oh, do you want to change your brain? And I'm looking at her and I'm like, well, yeah, of course. And she said, well, you know, I, I said, of course I do, but, you know, they've said I can't and it's impossible. And she said, no, that's not what I'm asking you. Do you want to change your brain? Yes. And she said, okay, well, you can. And, you know, the really just formative things that she just threw at me that just total game changers for me. And she said, you don't have an eating disorder. I looked at her like she was crazy. I'm like, I'm dying mm. of one. And she said, you know, an eating disorder is something that you do. It's a behavior that's become a habit and habits can be changed if you really want to. And I think in that moment, I realized that I was going to die. If I didn't do this, I was going to die. If I didn't dive in and take this leap of faith, I wouldn't be here. I didn't know what it was like to live as an adult. I'd got on well when I was 12. I had no independence. I never lived out of home. I couldn't feed myself. Like I wanted to know what life was like. And um, so I dived in. It was the hardest six months of my life. Uh, it was just sheer terror. Um, there were tantrums. I was literally like a toddler. Um, mm. Just absolutely feeling like you're stripping me of everything that I know. And I felt completely out of control. Um, however, you know, what we know is recovery is actually the process of me regaining control um, from my eating disorder. So um, it was a process of coming home to myself, becoming softer, not only in my body, but also in the way that I viewed the world um, and in the way that I treated other people. And um, it was a really, truly incredible, incredible process. So in six months, I, I weight restored and and found myself again, came home to myself. Um, mm, and yeah, it was, it was amazing. I mean, it was, it was extremely difficult, the hardest thing I've ever done, mm. but also the best yeah. thing that I've ever done. Um, went back to Auckland and swiftly realized that that wasn't going to be a place that was really conducive to me living this new life this, that I had. Um, I went to LA, which has always had a, held a special place in my heart and spent a couple of months there whilst I was there I had this really sort of pivotal moment where I was journaling in a park and I heard a woman pushing a girl little girl on a swing she was about seven years old and um she said to the girl you're getting too fat I won't be able to swing you uh, anymore soon and I just had this visceral reaction in the pit of my stomach to that comment and wanted to just scream at this woman like do you have any idea the the course of events that this could trigger off for this young girl and that was the moment where I started to realize that I did have something in me that I wanted to share and people have been saying you should write about your journey and I sort of thought, oh, there's lots of anorexia recovery books out there and I don't really feel I have anything unique to share. Despite that, um, so this was in the beginning of 2016, I sat there that night and wrote on my Facebook wall very in a very raw, honest way about what it felt like to live in a living hell of, of anorexia and um, I went to bed. And they woke up and hundreds and hundreds of people had liked it and shared it. And then Huffington Post published it and then um, various other media organizations. And this was this moment of going, that's what that was all about. So this is, mm. this is the reason. Um, and this is my purpose here on this earth. And so I decided I was going to move to the Sunshine Coast, my happy place, because why wouldn't you? I nearly died. So Love hey, <laughs> may as well live where I'm happiest. And I yep. wanted to start an eating disorders charity. And within two weeks of moving here, I met the amazing Mark and Gay Forbes, who had founded Ended as a parent support group. And I joined forces with them to help people who are, who are in the trenches themselves. And we had the joint dream of establishing the residential. The rest is history. Um, and as I say, now I've got my private practice and we've got various other things happening. And I feel incredibly, incredibly lucky to be able to use something that was the most painful, excruciating experience of my life. Um, to turn that around and to use it to help others. Um, and I feel very lucky mm -hmm. that every single day I wake up 
um, and know that um, I'm living my truth and um, I'm doing, you know, what I was put on this earth to do. Oh, I have goosebumps. It's like the very thing that sought to take your life is the thing that actually gave you your purpose. And, oh, I think it's so beautiful that that's the way um, our lives can turn around like that. It's so such a great story. I think you summed up a big journey really well, actually. <laughs> well done. I, know I was quite impressed with myself. I thought, gosh, I did that. <laughs> got that down. It was pat, good. Though. So before we get into sort of the topic that I want to ask you about, which is mm. this idea of the slippery slope of sort of diet culture, because that's certainly the area where I play in, and I don't, I don't work with clients with eating disorders. That's not my area of speciality. I want to ask you about neuro-linguistic programming that you yes. mentioned that you're trained in. Can you explain what that is and how it works? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit hard to – I always find it quite hard to articulate because I never really understood it until I was in it, you know, and, and mm. it, I was having, you know, in an NLP session. I was like, wow, this is powerful. Um, but, I mean, basically there's a connection, right, between our neurological processes, so that's the neuro part of it, yeah. language – the linguistic and behavioral patterns that are learned through experience, which is the programming. And these can be, um, you know, changed to achieve specific goals in life, right? So NLP is about using that, um, smashing through limiting beliefs, um, figuring out where, you know, for me it was like really getting to that bedrock of my eating disorder and going, right, we're going to deal with that. Um, mm. I explain it to clients like in their heads, there's an eating disorder super highway at the moment. And, you know, when you've thought a certain way for a period of time, those furrows in your brain, we've got all these neural pathways. And the more that you think that same thought or that same belief or held that same value, those connections um, become deeper and deeper. Those furrows in your brain are deeper and deeper. So this eating disorder super highway, it's fast. It's, you know, there's flashing lights. It's just easy to get on it, right? And so that's what you choose. However, on the side of that highway, there's, you know, a, a, a random hill that's all grassy and overgrown. And that's that's a pathway. That's a healthy self pathway that they, they need to choose again and again and again until it's a carved path, until it's a tar-sealed path, until it becomes a freeway. And and you are making those furrows deeper and deeper and deeper in that respect. And so, you know, NLP really empowers you to know that you can change your brain. It empowers you to know that, you know, anything is possible and that you have mm. all the school, the skills, tools and knowledge inside of you to do that. And I think one of also the formative things about NLP is that it's not about looking back and disparaging ourselves about decisions that we've made in the past because at the end of the day, you made the best decision at that point in time with all the tools, skills and knowledge that you had. And so it's just about using our experiences to um, to help us m moving forward, but also to to recognize patterns um, and and yeah change the way that we we live our lives and we look at our lives. Yeah, I love that. It's funny actually because without having ever been trained in NLP, I've frequently said to clients over the years, I was like, the way that you choose food and you think about food or you think about yourself and your body is a well-worn path in your brain and to do the new behaviour feels awkward and not comfortable because it's like walking through the bush with a machete, you know, like trying to carve yourself out a new path and 
of course, one of the sort of lies of diet culture is, you know, because there's this beautiful girl on Instagram with a cascading blonde ponytail and her green smoothie and she just woke up one day and she's a clean eater now and do you know what I mean? And everything's perfect and honky-dory and lovely and she reconciled with her mother and, you know, and I just think it's not that simple. (laughs) And so, yeah, so I love that. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. It's such a great analogy. Um, So... Let's talk about diet culture and body image and its role in eating disorder development. You said a really interesting thing as part of your story about the genetics loading the gun Mm -hmm. and then the environment pulling the trigger. So, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. Is is that mean that obviously obviously not everybody who does a crazy diet ends up with an eating disorder? But certainly if there are some predisposition here with our genetics that then sort of dabbling down particular sort of avenues of dieting can then trip them over? Yes. Is that yes. what that means? If you're genetically predisposed, yes, absolutely. And then obviously um, it's, it's to do with your personality characteristics. And I mean, someone can be genetically predisposed and it never gets triggered off. Mm. Their personality characteristics might be totally different and they're never put in an environment where... Um, makes them particularly vulnerable to it um, but it definitely definitely plays um, plays a part in it absolutely yeah yeah so there's some interesting stats around like young people and dieting with you know a good sort of I think it's like two-thirds of young people trying a diet by the time they're an adult and um, and then there being a proportion of them that then go on to develop an eating disorder how influential do you think diet culture is from an eating disorder perspective? Like was it for you or was it something entirely different for you? Diet culture is hugely influential when it comes to eating disorders and it is hugely influential in um, someone's ability to recover as well because it is incredibly mm. difficult to recover in a diet culture saturated society. Uh, I was having a, cl- a conversation with a client about this earlier this morning Um it is. It has a huge impact. If you think about the fact that you know we're constantly bombarded with images of perfection, of mm. um, this talk around good or bad foods, which is just utterly ridiculous because food does not have a moral value. Um, that this idea that we need to be limiting this, this idea that there's you know every if you were to look in the media every day, there's some new food that's going to kill you or some food that'll give you cancer, and then you know next month, oh no, that food is actually fights cancer, or it is just there's so much out there and people who aren't um, educated in in this take it mm. on and um, especially someone who's who has um, disordered eating or or is predisposed to having an eating disorder they take that and they run with it and take things to the extreme and I think there's so many different you know diets out there and I think the problem the problem what we have is that disordered eating is normalized in our culture so, yes. you know, a lot of uh, orthorexic tendencies are actually just totally normalized. Um, and that's really, really, really problematic, especially for um, our really young generation. So, you know, I have parents calling me whose uh, young ones at the age of five or six are coming home from school and asking why they don't have thigh gaps. Now, at the age of five, you shouldn't even have uh, a concept of what a thigh gap is, let alone be concerned about why you don't have one. Mm. Um, um, and so f- from my way of thinking, uh, diet culture and how and also how it manifests on social media 
uh, the two of those together, it's really is the perfect storm. And that's why we're seeing, I mean, eating disorder rates worldwide, and this was pre-COVID, had doubled mm. in the last 18 years. And then we, we're seeing some horrifying statistics at the amount of, um, you know, admissions eating disorder admissions to to hospitals since COVID. Um, and we're seeing people, um, because the thing is, you know, also with, with the pandemic, there was, again, this focus on bodies. I mean, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and people are worrying about whether they're going to gain weight during lockdown. Now, if that is not an indictment on how stuffed up our society is um, and how overly focused we are on weight and shape, I don't know what is. I mean, I was yeah. just mortified at how that became and, and the the, um, the exercise routines. And, you know, I mean, your Instagram feed was just full of that kind of stuff. And and then we've then all of a sudden we've got the what I eat in a day videos and things like that. It's like if we all ate the same and we all did the same, we're all going to look completely different, guys. And yeah. those images that you're seeing on the TV, on social media, you know, in, in the magazines, they are not real life um they've all been altered manipulated airbrushed you know whatever in in some way i mean even on zoom now apparently you can touch yourself up really (laughs) yes apparently you can i don't know how you do it but apparently you can and it's like yeah i just i it really worries me as to how we're going to how are we going to get around this? How are we going to change this rhetoric in society? And I think the other mm-hmm. the other thing that comes at us as well is this focus on the obesity epidemic, right? So a lot of the public health messaging is around um, doing a certain amount of exercise. Or I had a, I had a client the other day saying to me, she was just screaming down the phone. She was beside herself. She said, I mean, I, I twitch on the TV and there's either a an ad for light and easy or um, an ad for, you know, making sure you get the right amount of steps in. And and so I think we really have to think long and hard about how we, yes, obesity is an issue, 100%. But then we need to also look at how we can um, tackle that whilst not um, further, you know, further negatively affecting those who are already battling eating disorders and those that are predisposed to them. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And it's like, um, yeah, I, everything you just said, I feel like my brain's going a million miles an hour because for someone who's been in like nutrition industry, like I started off my career helping people lose weight because that's just what we did like back yeah. um, when we were first trained. I've now like brought myself to the point where I 100% will help a client lose weight if that's what they want to do. But it's never ever from the perspective of, I'm doing this because I have to be a better, prettier, more worthy, valuable person. It's kind of like, this has nothing to do with your value as a human being. Let's maybe try. And I often am trying to talk them into taking a more health-based approach. Just just think about maybe nourishing yourself a little bit more or um, or caring for yourself a little bit more through certain eating behaviours. But um, yeah, it's a it's a full minefield. I certainly feel like from nutrition because we've got on one extreme, you know, when we look at dietary information and intakes, a really um, unhealthy Western diet, right? That's poor for our health. But then that we, we flip all the way to this other extreme where there's just so much emphasis on what you eat and what you look like and how much you exercise and all this stuff that that becomes unhealthy too. And we just flick from one extreme to the other Mm. rather than finding you know, like, I don't know, there's some kind of middle ground, I believe, in there somewhere. 
it's 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 challenging. I don't think I've even figured out in my career how how we are supposed to do that, but we need to take the stigma and shame away from how we eat and what our bodies look like, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely we do and we need to normalize talking about that and mm. um I think, you know, I did I did a um a talk at a school the other day and I just said you know, you guys, it was to, to some of your 12 students, and I said, you guys need to be the change. So in the, in the playground, when you hear talk of, or you hear someone commenting on somebody's body or you hear um, someone talking about, uh, you know, what someone else is eating, either don't – if you can't speak up about it, then please don't participate in that conversation or walk away. But it, the best thing that you could do is actually speak up about it and, hey, guys, we shouldn't really even be talking about this stuff. Like, mm. and I think that's, that's so, so important. Yeah, definitely. That's something that, that I've tried to do because I've done lots of stupid diets in my younger years and spent a good majority of my 20s hating my body and not doing things. And um, for no other reason, just because I literally had went through this phase in my young adult, sort of 18, 19 where my parents had kept like magazines out of our family because I had a pretty strict sort of religious upbringing. And then I discovered like magazines with all these pretty women in them that looked a certain way and had like no freckles or skin blemishes and they had no hair and they're just, everything was so perfect. And I spent like all these years like trying to be like them without even realizing that that's not a real image. And I just think one of the things I've done with my daughter is never ever, and she's 13 now, is said anything negative about my body in front of her. I've always been like, yeah, this is my tummy that birthed you. And um, we're pretty open in our family. That it, they, she walks in on me naked all the time. But I'm just like, I'm never, I don't want to ever be ashamed of it, you know. And it, I've now he- never heard her speak anything negative about her body and but heard her friends do it. And I I feel like that's all it is. It's like modelling. In a whole generation, we could change the language of how they see their bodies and how they see other people's bodies. Amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's what we've got to realise is the impact of what, of what we think and what we say has on, has on them. So in terms of like obviously helping somebody with like managing an eating disorder if there's sort of people listening to the show at the moment one of the common things I've heard from definitely a lot of clients who have acknowledged that they have disordered eating practices so they're really restrictive and I've said to them you know if you're going to make improvements to your diet I actually think you need to be eating more I don't think you're eating enough and if I've managed to build a a good relationship with that client they then feel um, safe enough to say I'm afraid of putting on weight and so once I understand that then I'm like okay that's okay we can you know work really slowly to bring some balance um, back in but what's some advice that you use to work with people at various parts of their journey to help remove the fear of food for them or is that highly individualized? <laughs> it, oh, incredibly highly individual as, as yeah. is everything with eating disorder recovery and I think that's why the medical model has failed in a number of ways because it definitely has its place 100% don't get me wrong but we really need that individualized Mm. care that holistic care was take somebody and look at their particular situation not tick a box and say this person has anorexia nervosa therefore we will do this course of treatment it doesn't work then they'll come back in and we'll do the same thing oh it doesn't work we'll come back in and do the same thing because that's what we do with someone that fits in that box 
eating disorders don't fit in a box. Um, You know, for me, it's about getting people to view food differently. So food Mm. is for pleasure. Food is, yes, it's also for fuel. It's also to nourish our bodies. Um, But it is also there to just sometimes because you just feel like having an ice cream or, you know, you feel like having a cream bun or whatever it is. It doesn't have to be this calculated thing. It's um, something, you know, I mean, so much of our the way that we celebrate things and the way that we connect with people happens around food. And it's so important to be able to partake in that and to not be uh, spending our lives freaking out, uh, freaking out about it. And so um, I think I I do fair food jars with clients where we go through all of their fair foods and we do it. And then once they've done it once and I'm like, okay, then over the next couple of weeks, you've got to have that burger at least, you know, another three times. And just getting them to realize that all of a sudden, just by having certain types of foods doesn't mean your body suddenly um, starts to expand at a great rate of knots. And and also really digging deep with people and going, so what, what is this thing around weight gain? Why is this such a big issue for you? Um, Mm -hmm. Is it really the end of the world? Um, Let's look at your values versus your eating disorders values. What are your values? Because, you know, I think that they are aligned with much bigger things than um, than this obsession with food and weight and and, and body image. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also, and you touched on it a few times in your story, but there's this whole problem that we have with looking at someone and having a look at their body and letting that be the only indicator of whether they're okay or not like I remember a client who you know was by the GP standards 25 kilos overweight and every time she went to the GP for some other health issue he would hound her about losing weight Um, and very blunt and not very nice about it in the way he spoke to her and the problem was is that she decided to do something about it because he was just like constantly on her case. So she went and did like a 500 calorie diet. So basically starvation (laughs) diet that she followed. But of course, this is on the market, these kinds of diets anyway. So she's only eating 500 calories a day, practically starving herself. She's absolutely miserable, but she just feels so much pressure. She goes to the doctor to tell him, almost hoping that he'll be like, this is not healthy that you're eating like this. Do you know what I mean? This is not good. You need to go and get help. And he applauds her. Well done, right? But if... Somebody in a much thinner body goes to the GP and is like, I'm eating 500 calories a day. It's then like, oh, we need to now, this person needs help. But I think it was broke my heart that this woman, just because her BMI or her weight was over what it should be, according to whatever textbook, she didn't get the help that she needed or because we'd sort of looked at the body and just decided, oh, yeah, but she's big so she can afford to starve herself. You know what I mean? And I just think where you mentioned right at the beginning where they sort of refed you and you put the weight back on and then they sort of thought, okay, you're good now. But all internally, all inside you, you were still struggling. Do you think that that's a really common problem um, that happens with people with disordered eating on eating disorders? Absolutely. I think this is what what we need to understand is that eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes. And, yes. you know, unfortunately, the media tend to focus on uh, that one sort of typical image of someone with anorexia nervosa. Um, but what we know is, you know, the most common eating disorder is actually binge eating disorder. Um, mm. And I would say probably 80% of my clients are not necessarily underweight. Um, and it's really, really important that we recognize that just because someone has weight restored doesn't mean, uh, as my, my dear friend and colleague Claire Middleton always says, are they heart restored? 
And mm. so, you know, the weight can come on, but you've also got to make sure that that's the psychological um, side of things is also at the same time being dealt with um, because yep. those thought patterns can be there at whatever weight it is. Um, and I think it's very, very unfortunate that people in, in larger bodies are discriminated against uh, and also treated differently, you know, practitioners treat them differently and just as you said in terms of oh well you know being applauded for that behavior which is actually a really really toxic negative behavior just because they are in a larger body yeah breaks my heart I just (laughs) yeah I couldn't believe and unfortunately like definitely through our clinics it just it happens more and more in and sometimes what bothers me the most is that this is happening from other health professionals so I hope there are some GPs and other allied health professionals listening that they can sort of understand that we actually need to think about the person as a whole and not just make a judgment by by what we can see. Yeah. Absolutely. And there are a lot of stories like that um, in the episodes in the End Eating Disorders podcast as well um, that a lot of professionals mm. have said have been really, really eye-opening for them as to you know how they can treat people going forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I'd love to pick your brain on and just hear your thoughts is this whole idea of, from my perspective, my job as a nutritionist is to help people maximize their diet quality. But I certainly am of the belief that food is there for, yeah, fuel, nourishment and pleasure as well. And so that's how I've always approached it. Um, But how do you think like the industry, like if we were going to promote healthy eating but from the perspective that didn't spiral an individual into disordered eating practices, I don't know how we. What do we need to do? Like, what do you reckon? What are there coming kind of some things that you think? Oh, we need to change this here, or I'd love to see that change. I think taking a really holistic view of things, um, treating everyone as an individual rather than taking a blanket approach to yep. stuff. I uh, really we need to change the language. No labeling things as good or bad. Food yep. doesn't have a moral value, and you're not inherently good or bad for eating a particular type of food. I think that is essential. Yeah. I think we need to really look to the messaging that we use to our younger generation. Um, and when I say that, I'm talking, you know, right in preschool. How do we talk about food? How do we talk about bodies? Um, and I think it's really important to to also model, you know, the fact that no one has any right to comment on someone else's body as well and things like that so that we're taking that kind of emphasis off. Like everybody is so different and we don't, um, we don't make judgments on people um, because of, of how they look because mm. that's, that's no indication of who they are as a person and – um, I think if we can take that emphasis off that, that we will go a long, long way in terms of, um, you know, because when I think about it at the moment, I, I worry, I worry, like, where are we going to be in 10 years time with this, with diet culture as rife as it is? Mm. Like, you know, where are they, th- these kids that are, even the teenagers now, but especially the kids in primary school, how is this going to be for them? As they grow mm. up and then we've got things like TikTok and we, I just, it it worries me greatly. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, we get into our clinic very worryingly um, children as we have a peds dietitian and the parents are bringing them in and they're like, look at my child, look how fat they are, 
please help my child. And my poor pediatric dietitian is like cringing under the language. Um, and we are very clear on the fact that kids don't go on to diets, but we've had kids being put on intermittent fasting, keto diets, oh, all sorts of things. And we're just like, okay, no, no, no. Your child needs to eat food. And, you know, I frequently talk to, you know, women over the years who like are strictly calorie counting and then they don't, they're not eating dinner because they've hit their calorie quota for the day already. So they sit at the dinner table while the rest of their family eats, like not eating. I was like, you need to model eating with your kids. Like sit down, have dinner with them. The family meal is really important. <laughs> um, so I think it's, it's my generation, like my age. I'm actually not sure how close in age you are to me, but I've got I had kids young, so they're teenagers now, but Mm. having kids and we grew up in I grew up in diet culture but it's like we're putting it on because we think we actually think that that's healthy now because we were educated by marketing and social media I don't know it's just yeah I agree with you I'm scared too (laughs) oh yeah it's a I just constantly saying to parents just so be so so careful about what you say what you say and what you do and and everything yeah so if someone is struggling with themselves either from a, like a disordered eating, so highly restrictive eating pattern, or maybe they're feeling like they're binge eating regularly, or even if they do suspect that maybe they do have an eating disorder or a fa- friend or family member, what would be a really great process for them to go and start either finding help for themselves or help for their their loved one? Look, there are so many amazing, we're very privileged in Australia to have so many amazing eating disorder uh, organisations that have a wealth of resources when it comes to uh, seeking help. So obviously we have we have NDED, we have uh, the Butterfly Foundation, we have um, here in Queensland, we have Eating Disorders Queensland and Eating Disorders Victoria. Um, there is um, There are so many different avenues for, for seeking out um, resources. Um, there's, a, there's the NEDC, the National Eating Disorders Collaboration. There are so many um, avenues. The uh, making one phone call um, can you know someone can help. I know it indeed. We give as many different resources as we possibly can. I've got recommended reading lists. Um, obviously, the podcast as well. There's a wealth mm. of there's um, season the season one up there, and we're halfway through season two, and there's. It's such a wealth of, of, of resources out there. There's EDFA, which is Eating Disorders Families Australia, and they have, um, for I think it's $25 a year to sign up for a membership, and they have an incredible, I did a, a, a speech to their parents, um, the uh, I think last Thursday, and that's now up in their resource library, and so they've got an entire resource library of, of helpful, um, you know, guest speakers that they have come and, and things like that. So that would be my recommendation there. Um, and then, you know, talking with people who really know who the specialists are in this area. So mm. if we're in dead, for example, we have um, a compendium of who we know are really great psychologists in this area, GPs, dietitians, because that's the key is really knowing that you're going to go to a professional who really cares and they have a passion for eating disorders but also really in-depth knowledge of them rather than going to someone who really doesn't know what they're doing. So that can be a real key, especially if you've got a loved one who's um, a little bit hesitant to going to see someone. The last thing mm. you want to do is uh, arrange an appointment and for it to be um, negative in any way, shape or form. So yeah. um, that that's important. Also, um, 
you know, our, I'm sure you'll put them in the show notes, but at social media accounts that I run, those sorts of things, there's lots of helpful, um, inspirational content up there uh, for people to, to access as well. But, you know, if someone is worried about their loved one and, and wanting to approach them about, about it, I mean, you know, the things that I would recommend that they do is be really non-confrontational, uh, mm. you know, t- tell them that they're here for them um, and that what their concern comes from a place of love. Don't comment on their body, comment on possibly, you know, the fact that they feel that they have um, become more withdrawn or they've noticed that, you know, their behaviours have changed and and that in itself is, you know, is, is really, really important. And don't mm. let um, – just – let them guide you as to what they need um, in that moment. However, obviously, uh, if you you know, it, it, when I say that, I mean in terms of sometimes I didn't want hugs. I just wanted someone to listen, and sometimes I didn't want mm. any even advice. I just wanted to be able to cry, and so just hold time and space for them, and um, you know, offer to go to appointments with them and um, and help them help them along the way. But um, the other thing I would say to carers out there is for some who's they're caring for a loved one with an eating disorder is remember that self-care isn't selfish and you can only be the best person to you know to support your loved one if if you take time out for yourself yeah um and to, to support yourself yeah no that's really good so it's kind of like really aiming to sort of really assemble like you mentioned that team around you a multidisciplinary team is yeah. key to effective eating yeah. disorder recovery uh, I can't recommend that strongly enough. It's really, really important. Um, yeah. And it's, it's crucial that that team communicates because eating disorders love to split teams. Um, so <laughs> we need that team yeah. communicating and really all being on the same page in that person's recovery. Oh, I love that, Millie. I think you're doing incredible things in what is a super challenging space. Um, I certainly feel like for myself, you know, being in nutrition and just seeing this – this whole darker side of dieting and wellness, it's just, yeah, it's such a shame that this is where our culture is going. But I'm I'm really pleased to know that there are people like you doing such great work. I have thoroughly listened, enjoying, um, thoroughly enjoyed listening to the End Eating Disorders podcast. It's like the stories on there are so moving. I loved the one about recently about the horse therapy. Oh, Jane. Yes, she's incredible. She's absolutely amazing. You guys, you have to listen to this episode. So they go and it's equine therapy. That's what yeah, it's called, isn't it? Yeah, interplay and of equine therapy and narrative therapy. It's incredible. Beautiful. It was absolutely incredible. I was like, never heard of any of that before. And so I'm just learning so much through it. So, but Millie, thank you so much for sharing so openly about your story and what you do. And yeah, for chatting with me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on your wonderful podcast no worries at all well that's it for today's show everybody we will catch you in the next episode this is the end eating disorders podcast brought to you by Lockaway self-storage and podspot your financial support will save lives donate at ended.org.au i always used to think like how can people not hear what's going on in my head <laughs>